Hi, this is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of uh, speaking with Dr. Devin Apt, who is in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts. And the topic of this discussion is our lead article on endometrial stripe thickness, a preoperative marker to identify patients with endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia who may benefit from sentinel lymph node mapping and biopsy. Uh, welcome, Devin, and thank you so much for taking the time to uh, do this podcast with us. Thank you so much, Dr. Ramirez. I really appreciate the opportunity to come speak about our work here today. Well, uh, Devin, it's uh, it's absolutely a pleasure, and, and uh, it's really great to see that you know certainly very early in your academic career, you're already uh, doing a podcast and a, and a lead article, and uh, so certainly we're excited about that, and we're we're excited also to be welcoming you soon as an interviewee for our fellowship in uh, gynecologic oncology. So uh, thank you once again, and, and congratulations. Thank you. So, Devin, um, lots of uh, points for discussion uh, with regards to this uh, article. And I wanted to just start by um, asking us to the proposed rationale for sentinel lymph node mapping <clears throat> in patients with uh, endometrial hyperplasia or intraepithelial um, uh, neoplasia. Uh, wouldn't most of these patients either not have cancer or have uh, cancer of high risk to necessitate a lymph node evaluation? In other words, why are we talking about sentinel lymph node mapping in this kind of very low risk population? Yeah, so there's a couple of rationales. You know, I think in the past, given the high morbidity associated with full pelvic lymphadenectomy, um, Lymph, uh, in you know what were otherwise considered low-risk patients, treatment for EIN and atypical hyperplasia had historically relied on hysterectomy alone for that reason. But you know we do know that atypical hyperplasia is associated with a 40% or so risk of concurrent invasive endometrial cancer. And though most of these patients are going to have low-grade and early-stage disease, roughly 10% of them will have pathologic features that warrant lymph node evaluation. So I think the issue that often arises is that it can be difficult um, to determine intraoperatively those patients that might benefit from a lymph node dissection can be difficult to determine if a cancer is present. And then if it is present, the depth of invasion and other pathologic features are also difficult to triage intraoperatively. And so in some institutions, frozen section may not even may not be reliable or available altogether. So, you know, more recently with availability and accuracy of sentinel lymph node technology improving, um, the morbidity of evaluating lymph nodes has decreased. And the appeal of using this technology in patients with preoperative diagnoses of atypical hyperplasia and EIN is increasing, given the relative low risk of the procedure and the possibility that this could elicit information for some patients um, that would be important for their treatment. Yeah, that, that's really uh, well said. And, uh, and I think, you know, certainly, obviously, to, to your point is that a lot of times is that you don't know when, how to predict which patients are going to have uh, cancer. And of course, obviously, once the uterus is out and they tell you the frozen section results, you can't go back to, to, to actually do the mapping. So I wanted to also then follow that up with um, a question regarding um, if you can explain to our audience, what is the standard today for um, endometrial cancer evaluation uh, intraoperatively, perhaps touch upon the, the Mayo criteria? Um, you know, is it pelvic periodic lymphadenectomy, or is it fair to say that, you know, the new standards should be sentinel lymph node mapping for everyone? 
You know, for patients with known endometrial cancer, sentinel lymph node mapping has definitely emerged as a safe and accurate alternative to complete lymphadenectomy, especially when performed with an algorithm that includes pathologic ultrastaging. And, you know, the Aztec trial showed us that in patients with early endometrial cancer, there's no therapeutic forming lymphadenectomy. So, you know, given more recent data that's showing, um, you know, great diagnostic accuracy in both low and high risk histologies and as well as, you know, overall increased access to minimally invasive surgical platforms. I think currently sentinel lymph node dissection really has emerged as the standard of care. Um, you know, there certainly are still institutions who are um, using the Mayo criteria. So using frozen section intraoperatively to evaluate the um, uh, uterus and to determine if based on pathologic criteria, including invasion and tumor diameter, that these patients warrant lymph node um, evaluation by pelvic lymphadenectomy, though I think that in patients with endometrial cancer, that that is certainly falling out of favor. You know, that being said, for patients with a preoperative diagnosis of endometrial hyperplasia, of which we know there's a baseline risk of concurrent um, underlying carcinoma, there really aren't any clear consensus guidelines regarding lymph node evaluation. And um, despite sentinel lymph nodes being um, increasingly popular in endometrial cancer, I think a lot of people still are relying on Mayo criteria in patients with EIN. Um, and as we said before, that can be really hard to evaluate intraoperatively and, to, and often results in total pelvic lymphadenectomy for patients that we are generally considering to be low risk for um, invasive um, and aggressive disease. So you know, given the variability and accuracy in um, frozen section and the morbidity of lymphadenectomy, I think um, because of what we've moved to doing in endometrial cancer, I think that's why more and more people are starting to wonder what is the role of sentinel lymph node dissection um, in patients with atypical hyperplasia and EIN. Great. So um, thank you so much for, for outlining it and articulating it. I should also um, uh, point out for our international listeners that, you know, certainly in the United States, we tend to use a lot of abbreviations. So when we refer to EIN is endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, which often we use interchangeably with uh, atypical hyperplasia. Um, Devin, I wanted to ask you also, because it, it is my understanding, and I, I think I read a, a recent article that the frequency of this practice, in other words, the, the frequency of surgeons performing sentinel lymph node mapping for endometrial hyperplasia in the United States, at least, seems to be increasing. Do you have any, any uh, uh, comments about that? Yeah, so there actually was a, an article published by Dr. Wright and his team out of Columbia um, last year that evaluated the patterns of lymph node assessment in women with atypical hyperplasia. And they looked at about 10,000 women from 2012 to 2018 in the US with a prospective database. Um, and they saw that over that period, the rate of patients undergoing lymph node dissection overall increased only 1.1 fold from about 5.7% to 6.4% over that time period. But over that same time period, the rate of patients undergoing sentinel lymph node mapping increased 17.5 fold. Mm -hmm from 0.8% to 14% um, by 2018. So this suggests that providers you know, are increasingly moving towards sentinel lymph node mapping for all the reasons we previously discussed, just very little prospective data about this. Um, and this number has really probably only increased over the last several years. This data you know, only ended in 2018. So you know, I think this is very clear that this is where people are moving. And one question that the data that they published does raise is how are providers choosing 
which patients to offer sentinel lymph node dissection to. Um, they certainly suggested some geographic preferences for um, patients in the Western United States were more commonly undergoing sentinel lymph node dissection than in other areas of the country. But I think um, it definitely begs the question of how are we triaging these people that are getting sentinel lymph nodes. Fantastic. So now let, let's get into your study. Uh, what was the, the study design? If you could just uh, give us a, an overview as to who you included, who was excluded, and what was the primary objective of your study? Yeah, so our primary objective was to identify preoperative characteristics that were associated with concurrent endometrial cancer at the time of hysterectomy among women with endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. And our secondary outcome was to identify characteristics that may predict high risk disease so that we could possibly use these characteristics to define a subset of patients who might benefit from sentinel lymph node dissection at the time of hysterectomy. So this was a single center retrospective cohort study, and we used ICD-9 and 10 codes for EIN, or I'm sorry, endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia or atypical hyperplasia to identify. Um, and then patients who had confirmed endometrial intraepithelial after review by our pathologist, who also hysterectomy from January 2010 to January and that gave us a final cohort of 300 patients. Great. And what would you say were the, the main results of the study? Um, what would you say were like the, the, the take-home points from, from your study? So we found that in a fairly large cohort of patients with preoperative diagnosis of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia, 27% had concurrent endometrial cancer on final pathology. And 9% of patients had endometrial cancer meeting high-risk Mayo criteria. And no patients in our cohort had greater than stage 1B disease or positive lymph nodes. Um, and when evaluating preoperative characteristics, specifically older age and increased endometrial stripe were associated with a higher risk of concurrent endometrial cancer. And most importantly, we found that a preoperative endometrial stripe greater than or equal to 20 millimeters, was, patients were two times more likely to have endometrial cancer. And patients with endometrial cancer and an endometrial stripe greater than or equal to 15 millimeters were two and a half times more likely to meet high-risk Mayo criteria. So this data you know, suggested that endometrial stripe is a useful preoperative marker to identify patients who are at higher risk for concurrent endometrial cancer. Great. So I, I do wanted to ask you, obviously, some, some details with regards to um, those results. And, and some, some of these questions now are coming from our fellows in the International Journal, Hussein El Hajj from, uh, from France. He's asking, you evaluated endometrial stripe as a predictor of determining the need for lymph node evaluation. Um, do you consider that you know, the best modality uh, and, and subsequent predictor is through the use of ultrasound? or through the use of MRI? Yeah, so that's a great question. Our, our patients to be included um, in our cohort didn't have to have preoperative imaging. Um, however, most patients did. We were missing about 68 patients who didn't have any preoperative imaging. Um, but most of these patients had preoperative ultrasound with a mean time between imaging and surgery of 12 weeks. Um, and you know, going into the study, because of prior studies, um, which demonstrated a relationship between preoperative imaging and risk of endometrial cancer, we were very interested in this variable to begin with. So we did review multiple different types of imaging, um, but we did one thing we found was that because most patients had low suspicion for invasive disease prior to surgery, 
very few patients had MRI performed preoperatively. Um, and so because of that very small sample size, we didn't try to draw any meaningful conclusions from the MRI data that we had. And um, I do think it's unlikely in the future that obtaining data from MRI would be cost effective when it compared to using ultrasonography uh, in determining preoperative endometrial thickness. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that it's a very unlikely that patients with endometrial hyperplasia will be getting routine MRIs. And as you said, cost effectiveness is, uh, is a major factor. And uh, one of the, the questions uh, raised from Catherine hicks uh, who's at the University of Pennsylvania, is um, why do you think there was a correlation to the Mayo high-risk uh, criteria with stripe um, of greater than 15 millimeters, but not 20 millimeters? Yeah, I think the, the reason for this was really just the smaller sample size. Mm -hmm. In our cohort, only 20 patients had an endometrial stripe greater than or equal to 20 millimeters who had endometrial cancer. And so therefore we had a fairly wide confidence interval, even though our risk ratio you know, suggests that probably with a larger cohort that this, this actually would be significant. And that um, probably if we had a larger data set stratifying by 20 millimeter endometrial stripe, we probably would see that that might be uh, a more specific cutoff that would be reasonable to use. And, and another question from, from Catherine that I think often comes up when uh, discussing this topic is uh, the, the preoperative diagnosis assessment, um, either by endometrial biopsy versus a DNC. Um, does this make a difference in, in how we should uh, proceed in our, in our planning? Yeah, so given that all the patients um, in our court had diagnoses of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia before they were referred to gynecologic oncologists at this institution, we included all methods of sampling in our final cohort. And we didn't look specifically to see if there was a relationship between the mode of diagnosis and final pathology. Certainly based on previous data, I think that would be interesting to look at going forward if, um, you know, uh, diagnosis via endometrial biopsy versus DNC um, has a, you know, demonstrates a different um, correlation to final pathology and could be factored into some sort of algorithm to determine which patients are at higher risk for um, high risk disease warranting lymph node dissection. But we didn't specifically look at that, but I think looking at a larger data set, that would be something, one variable that would be interesting to take into account. Perfect. That, that's your, your first project in fellowship then. <laughs> <laughs> I have many. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so one of the other things also is that you know, of the patients with cancer. So obviously it's not typically that many in, in this setting, but uh, 9% uh, believe were considered high risk. And I understand this is a primarily due to the tumor diameter. Um, how does this factor or how should this factor into the counseling of our patients and, and subsequently actually the management of, of our patients? Yeah, so... Actually, in, in the cohort, 9% of patients in the entire cohort um, had uh, were considered high risk, and 31% of the patients with endometrial cancer were considered um, high risk by Mayo criteria. But you're correct that the, most of them met this um, by tumor diameter alone. About 85% of them um, met, met the criteria by tumor diameter alone. So, you know, I think this is important for patients because although we do think that the majority of the patients will have low-grade early stage disease, we do have to admit that there are a subset of patients for whom lymph node evaluation would be warranted based on Mayo criteria. Um, you know, I think a lot of people 
um, don't necessarily weigh the tumor diameter as highly when they're calculating their Mayo criteria as other um, pathologic criteria, but I think it's hard to really know what that means in this context. So I think, um, you know, just making sure that patients are aware that there is a risk that they could have a higher risk disease where they would warrant lymph node evaluation and that we do have data that suggests that maybe there are ways that we can help to stratify them preoperatively uh, about what their risk is. Um, um, so that we can share that, so we can kind of engage in some sort of shared decision-making model about what's right for them. I do think that one of the, you know, questions that comes up a lot when we talk about our final um, cohort and what their, you know, no one had stage two disease and relatively few people had high risk features, you know, the question that comes up is, does anybody need sentinel lymph nodes? Um, and I think that's a very valid question that a lot of people are asking, but I think what's helpful about this data is that we, we see that people are using sentinel nodes in patients with atypical hyperplasia. And um, I think that there's not, it doesn't have to be a question of all, if we can determine how to use this cost effectively and find a certain proportion of the population that would benefit, um, it would be helpful. But clearly the data shows that these are very low risk patients. Yeah, so actually that, that brings me to my, my next question because you, you mentioned a little bit about cost effectiveness. And I think that, you know, looking at your results, the overwhelming majority of patients had, I believe, stage 1A, uh, tumors less than two centimeters. Uh, I believe it's also only 1% of patients had grade three disease. 5% uh, of patients had more than 50% invasion. So, I mean, some would say, you know, what's, what's the cost uh, of actually doing sentinel lymph node evaluation um, in every patient that has endometrial hyperplasia? And, and, and I was wondering if you can expand on that. Yeah, so I, I definitely do think the data out there and the data that we have here suggest against the routine use of sentinel lymph node mapping in all patients undergoing hysterectomy for atypical hyperplasia or endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. You know, we looked at a fairly large cohort of patients, um, and though 27% had cancer, despite minimal lymph node evaluation, really just 10 patients in the whole cohort, there were no deaths from disease, no recurrence of disease, no stage two disease, as you, as you said. So, you know, based on this data and other data that's similar, um, I think that I don't think that um, routine central lymph node and everybody would be cost effective and it would result in significant overtreatment. There was a study out of Brown in 2020 that showed that 200 patients would need to be treated with sentinel lymph nodes for one patient to have a positive node. Um, and I know Duke did a cost effectiveness analysis as well that looked at patients with endometrial hyperplasia who had hysterectomy alone with frozen suction and hysterectomy with sentinel lymph node dissection. And from a cost effectiveness standpoint, hysterectomy with frozen suction actually made the most sense. Um, and so I think that, um, and I, I think as well, the data out of Columbia that, that we talked about earlier earlier showed that there was a $1,300 you know, increase mm. for um, adding on sentinel lymph nodes to hysterectomy. So I think in this era of thinking about financial toxicity to healthcare systems and patients, it's something we have to be thinking about. And I don't think you know, routine sentinel lymph node dissection makes sense in light of the data that we have about the final pathologic characteristics of these patients' um, tumors um, and the low rate of positive lymph nodes. But, you know, I do think that given the standard of care is frozen section with lymphadenectomy and the, the real barriers, some institutions to accurate frozen section and the morbidity of lymphadenectomy, 
Um, we do need to continue looking into how to stratify patients preoperatively to determine who would ben benefit from sentinel lymph node dissection, even if we're saying, you know, not everybody should be getting it. Yeah, so, so actually, you know, certainly, you know, as you mentioned, and, and I think you mentioned this also in your discussion, that doing uh, routine uh, sentinel lymph node evaluation on all patients with endometrial hyperplasia would have resulted in overtreatment in up to 98% of patients. But you did mention earlier also, you know, the, the issue uh, regarding the, the fact that, you know, there's an increasing percentage of, of practitioners who are just routinely performing uh, sentinel lymph node mapping and endometrial hyperplasia. So I was wondering if you can sort of address the, 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 the counter argument from, from those individuals who advocate doing it, where they say, look, you know, in my institution, um, we don't have such great pathology evaluation intraoperatively, so therefore, I do sentinel lymph node mapping on everybody. Um, what would you say to that? And is this a point where you would bring in using the endometrial stripe uh, evaluation preoperatively to then triage patients accordingly? Exactly. I think you're exactly right. So I, I think it's hard to argue with the data that we have from multiple studies that show these are really a low risk group of patients um, with low grade uh, tumors and early stage disease. Um, you know, and even at a center like ours, where we do have fairly accurate frozen section, or we would consider it fairly accurate, two of five patients with stage 1B disease were understaged on frozen section intraoperatively. So, um, you know, I really, I don't think uh, it's a question of, oh, if you have great frozen section, you don't need to start thinking about this. And if you don't have frozen section, you should do nodes on everybody. You know, I think that there is a middle ground, and this is exactly where the idea of using the data we have regarding endometrial thickness can be helpful. And I think if we can risk stratify patients based on their preoperative factors and determine who is really going to benefit from sentinel lymph node dissection, I think that that is actually is going to be the best thing for patients and providers going forward. Great. And uh, so now, Devin, look, looking at your, your own data, um, what would you say are some of the things that our listeners and, and those who read your article really need to focus with regards to the limitations of the study? Yeah, the biggest limitation of the study is not necessarily unique to the study, but to all single center you know, studies, and that we examined a group of fairly homogenous and predominantly white patients in a Northeast and urban area. And so that really limits the generalizability of what we found here. Um, and as, as I discussed earlier, you know, we're an, at an academic center with dedicated gynecologic pathologists who also review our preoperative biopsies and our frozen section pathology. And so, um, you know, we had very accurate di preoperative diagnoses of endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia going into surgery. Um, so I think if we're talking about creating an algorithm or some sort of predictive score that's going to help surgeons identify patients who can benefit from sentinel lymph node mapping, we really need to you know, look past this data set and focus more on efforts to collect data from a much larger, more diverse cohort. And I think that's the biggest limitation of the data we have. Great. Uh, this A uh, couple of more questions. Uh, this uh, question comes from Christina Ewing, the, one of our fellows in the, in the UK. And she says, where do you see these results fitting within a molecular risk profiling algorithm uh, in the management of patients with uh, endometrial cancer or endometrial hyperplasia? I think, I think that's a, an interesting question. And I think as we learn more about the molecular characteristics in endometrial cancer and what's associated with more aggressive, invasive, or treatment-resistant disease, um, 
I think it's possible that molecular testing on pre-malignant conditions like endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia or atypical hyperplasia could be performed. And, you know, it would be interesting to see if that molecular testing could be also used to classify patients um, at risk of having invasive carcinoma or high-risk pathology based on what we know about these, you know, molecular characteristics in patients with, you know, with endometrial cancer. Um, so I think it's just, I think that piece is just one other thing that we could possibly use in the future to help to risk stratify these patients with um, endometrial intraepithelial neoplasia. But again, given the cost associated with, with this sort of molecular profiling and the generally low risk nature of the, the group of patients that we're talking about, I, I do wonder if that would result in excess costs for, for minimal benefit really and where that would play in in the future. But it's certainly something interesting to think about. Great. And Devin, one, one last question is, uh, you know, where should we go from here with regards to the general practice, given the results of, of your study, um, not only as it pertains to gynecologic oncologists, but also, you know, certainly general gynecologists will be seeing many patients with uh, endometrial hyperplasia. Um, what is your recommendation? And uh, do, do, you, do you suggest that central lymph node mapping be done uh, routinely in patients with uh, endometrial thickness more than 15 millimeters. So I, I think, I think it's hard to make any big generalizations based on the data we have, but it, that it's certainly something interesting to think about in the context of of everything. So, you know, as endometrial cancer rates rise in, in this country, I think we're all beginning to acknowledge some of the social determinants of health and barriers to care that are contributing to this. And in parts of the country where access to gynecologic oncologists is limited and benign gynecologists offer surgical management for EIN, I think that that's reasonable. And that preoperative endometrial stripe greater than or equal to 15 millimeters could be used for them as a you know reasonable cutoff to refer those patients to a gynecologic oncologist, given their um, the subset was more likely to meet criteria for lymph node assessment. And I think that would be one way of helping patients access care that would, you know, sort of help risk stratify people and make generalists feel more comfortable while, while also making sure that patients who we know are high risk for lymph node dissection are being referred to the proper um, surgeons for that um, surgery. But um, as far as the application of our data, I think clearly it suggests that endometrial greater than or equal to 15 millimeters useful preoperative marker to identify not only patients um, at high risk for having concurrent endometrial cancer, but high risk endometrial cancer. Um, and that risk ratio is 2.2. Um, and so though the data is from a single institution, I do think it's reasonable to consider discussing this with patients, especially in certain clinical scenarios, patients where frozen section is unavailable or unreliable, or in patients who are very high risk for morbidity from complete lymphadenectomy or reoperation patients, given that what we know about increased age um, and association with endometrial cancer. So in these clinical, in these specific clinical scenarios, based on the information we know, I think it, it would be reasonable to consider this a criterion for your selective sentinel lymph node mapping um, algorithm. But I think in the long term, we need significantly more data, um, including some prospective studies looking at preoperative factors from a much larger cohort in order to form some sort of generalizable um, score, and then we would need to sort of test this score al algorithm prospectively at multiple centers before we could really make a broad generalization. But I know even at our center, we've started discussing these findings with our patients when we're deciding, um, you know, what we're going to move forward with at the time of surgery, 
But um, you know, even here we haven't we haven't totally moved over to saying everybody with a stripe greater than or equal to 15 millimeters warrants a sentinel lymph node evaluation. Well, Devin, thank you so, so much for your time. Uh, really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. This was really a, a great learning experience and, and congratulations once again on, on this work and uh, congratulations to all of your co-authors as well. Uh, thank you for accepting our invitation. Uh, we look forward to actually uh, doing the Journal Club um, and, and we look forward to, to hearing you answer some additional questions during that time as well. So um, once again, congratulations and thank you. Thank you so much.